Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. All right, good morning. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. You can grab one to follow along this morning. We are going to be mostly in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 this morning as we continue and finish our sermon series entitled The Meaning of Christmas. My goal in this series has been to answer the question, who is this Jesus whose birth that we celebrate on Christmas? And to answer this question, this series, I've been looking through the book of Isaiah at some of the prophecies found there uh, that Isaiah gave 700 or so years before the birth of Jesus. In case you're unfamiliar with uh, Isaiah or with the history of Israel up at that point, uh, let me just give a brief context. Um, If you go all the way back, uh, God has taken Israel out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. He's brought them to Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses. And at Mount Sinai, he's given them the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, You think of the Ten Commandments, the other laws that were given there. Basically, it's an agreement between God and his people saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. This is what it means to be the people of God. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, and so on. And then he gives a bunch of blessings and curses. If you follow these laws, these good things will happen. If you disobey, these bad things will happen. Every time that the nation of Israel began to stray from the covenant, God would raise up a prophet. And the prophet would be a mouthpiece, a spokesperson for God to come to the people and say, Repent, turn away from your sin, from your idolatry, from your false worship, from your injustice. Turn away from all of those things because you are in danger of bringing the curses of the covenant upon you. Turn back to God. So that is who Isaiah was. He was a prophet. He was calling the people of Israel back to faithfulness to God. At that time that Isaiah came on the scene. Israel had split into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, Judah, was facing pressure from some invading tribes. And Judah was faced with a choice. And the king at that time, King Ahaz, was faced with a choice to either trust in God or to trust in a foreign nation to defend him. And Isaiah came and prophesied and told him to trust in God, but instead the king decided to call for help from a neighboring country, Assyria. And Assyria came and defended Judah, but then turned and destroyed Judah. And eventually Judah and Israel wound up in captivity in Assyria, and then after Assyria in captivity to Babylon. But even in the midst of all of these prophecies and warnings, Isaiah in chapter 9 gives this prophecy about an eternal king. And I want to just read, this is what we looked at three weeks ago from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So even in the midst of these warnings, even in the midst of Israel and their disobedience about to go into exile, God gives this word through Isaiah the prophet that one day there will be a king who will be born, who will be God in human form. He will reign over an eternal kingdom. He will bring peace and justice to the world. But sadly, Israel is taken into captivity 
by Assyria. Assyria is conquered by Babylon. And then the second half of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah, uh, chapters 40 to 66, are directed to the Israelites in exile. And it gives them words of comfort and hope about the restoration that's going to come as they are brought back from exile. But even as you read through these chapters, you notice that this physical exile that they are in exile and captivity, is pointing to a larger spiritual exile that the whole world is in. That it's not just about being in captivity to Assyria and Babylon, but it's about being in captivity to sin. That they need a deliverer not just from oppression physically, but they need a deliverer from spiritual oppression as well. Someone who will come and deliver them from sin and evil and death itself. And this morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. This shocking passage. If there was ever a passage, a prophecy in Isaiah that would have shocked the people of Israel, it would be this one. It's hard to put yourself in their shoes, but as you read, imagine what it would be like being in exile and hearing this prophecy, looking for a deliverer who will rescue you from oppression, and hearing instead these words of prophecy about what this deliverer would really be like. So, let's read Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, to 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. 
Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, help us to hear and understand what this word meant to the Israelites who heard this originally and what it means to us today. Lord, let this passage transform our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, think about what the Israelites must have been thinking as they hear these words of prophecy. They are in exile, waiting for a deliverer, someone who will rescue them from captivity. And here comes this passage about God's promised deliverer. But instead of hearing about a conquering hero who will ride out in power and strength, instead they hear these words about a suffering servant who will die. There's three reasons in particular I think this passage would have been troubling for the Israelites. The first is that we read that the servant will die a violent death. In verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. And that word pierced is the word run through. It's a very violent form of death in the Hebrew language. He was crushed for our iniquities. How does that fit with being a conquering hero? How is this deliverer going to rescue them from oppression by being killed violently? The second reason this passage would have been troubling is that It seems that this servant is going to die for the nation. He's going to die in place of the Israelites. In verse 5 again, it says, He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And in verse 10 it says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Now, of course, the Israelites were familiar with, with sacrifice and offerings. Certainly they were familiar with the sacrificial system in which an animal might be sacrificed to atone for their sins. They were used to having to bring a lamb or a pigeon or a goat and sacrifice it for their sins. But here in this passage, it seems that there's this human, this servant, who is not only going to die a violent death, but his violent death is going to be for the nation. It's going to be a guilt offering for their sins. Now, certainly the Bible is against human sacrifice. So how would an Israelite have made sense of this passage that this servant is going to be a human sacrifice for their sins? And then third, the third reason this passage would have been very troubling for the Israelites who heard it is that the servant will die voluntarily. In verse 4 it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. That verse, took up, means that he will pick them up and put them on his back in the ancient Hebrew. And then in verse 7 it says that as he's led like a lamb to the slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't try to save his own life. He willingly goes to his death. Do you see how confusing this would have been to the Israelites? They're in captivity, waiting for a deliverer, and here comes this prophecy through the prophet Isaiah that there will be a deliverer. God will raise up a servant. And that he is going to deliver them by dying a violent death in their place for their sins as a guilt offering. And he will do this willingly, laying down his life, giving up his life, taking on their sins. How would any Israelite have made sense of this? Doesn't fit the profile of the conquering hero. Who could this servant be? Well, we find the answer if you skip ahead many centuries to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. 
It's a story of one of Jesus' apostles named Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. Let's read Acts 8, 26-39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So in this story, we have an Ethiopian eunuch who's gone all the way to Jerusalem to worship and now he's coming back and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and God sends Philip there to tell him who this passage is about. This very passage that we've been looking at this morning that would have been so mysterious and confusing to those ancient Israelites. And Philip says this passage about this lamb who will be led to the slaughter is Jesus. And that's the answer to all the questions. This is not just an ordinary man. This is the very Son of God. He can lay down his life because he is God and he can lay down his own life. It's not suicide. He can die for the nations as a perfect sacrifice because he lived the perfect life. And it explains the violence of his death because the law of God says that it's only by blood sacrifice that sins are atoned for. Think of Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. At Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So this is the way it was set up. Without the shedding of blood, there must be a penalty. There must be, someone must pay the penalty for the sins. They don't just go away. And Isaiah 53 prophesies that this servant is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who come into this world and will live the perfect life that we could not live, and then will die a death in our place, a violent death, willingly going to his death, a sacrificial death for our sins. And then, as you read through Isaiah 53 and see that this servant is going to suffer and die, by the end you see that death is not the end for this servant. In verse 11 it says, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Do you hear that? After his suffering, after his death, 
he will see the light of life. He will rise again. This Messiah, this servant, this Jesus will die a violent death for the sins of the people to rescue them not just from physical exile, but from spiritual exile. From captivity, not just to Babylon, but captivity to sin and death. And then he will rise again to show that he has the power to conquer sin and death. This passage we're looking at from Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, spells out clear as day what Christmas is all about, who this Jesus is, why he came into the world. Not just to show us who God is, but to die for our sins, to restore us to a right relationship with God. So I want to leave you with two implications from this passage, two things that this means for us today. The first thing we learn from this passage is do not judge things as the world judges. When you read through Isaiah 52 and 53, there are many contrasts that Isaiah paints between what people thought was going on and what was really going on. That The people with their own eyes judged this servant and what was happening one way, but the reality was completely different. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And later on it says, We considered him smitten by God, stricken and afflicted. People thought that this man was suffering because of something he had done. And they, it says they esteemed him not. They didn't even pay mind, pay attention to him. He was rejected. He was a nothing. Now, if you've ever watched any of the Bible TV miniseries or anything like that, you know this is the picture that's usually given of Jesus. He's windswept hair, looking beautiful, with his piercing blue eyes. But according to Isaiah 53, that's probably not what he looked like. He was, it says, a man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected, like one from whom men hide their faces. We esteemed him not. He was not this magnetic personality, it looks like. He was one that people would not give a second glance to. Ordinary. How wonderful is that? That this is the kind of God we serve. Whatever we've gone through, he has been there. He suffered for us. You think of Hebrews four fourteen to 16 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is our God that we can approach that came not as some conquering hero, but as a baby born in a manger, overlooked, visited not by the kings of the world, but by shepherds who were unclean to the Israelites, by astrologers, surrounded by animals, born, placed in a manger, with a mother who was a pregnant, unwed teenager when she conceived. This is our God. Do not judge as the world judges. This is our God. Come as a baby in Christmas. 1 Samuel sixteen seven. 
The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do not judge the way the world judges. Secondly, the second implication of this passage, the, the one I want to leave you with, is that he died for our sins. This servant, this Messiah, this Jesus died for our sins to make us right with God. Verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This servant not only lived the life we couldn't live perfectly, but then died the death we deserve to die, taking the penalty that we deserve for our sins, taking the punishment that Israel deserved for breaking the covenant of God. Look at the exchange that happens here. What does the servant get? He gets pierced. He gets crushed. He gets punished. He gets the wounds. And what do we receive? Forgiveness, peace, healing. Isaiah compares us to sheep. He says we're like sheep gone astray, eating one blade of grass after another until we look up and we find that we're lost. We're in a mess. We need someone to rescue us. But the Lord came and got us and laid on the servant, on Jesus, all of our sins. That phrase, laid on him our iniquity for the Israelites would have called to mind the sacrificial system and how on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would choose two goats and one would be sacrificed as a sin offering. The other would be the scapegoat and all the sins would be laid on that scapegoat and he would be sent out into the desert. Leviticus 16, 20 to 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. And that sacrificial system was pointing, of course, to this once-for-all sacrifice of the servant, the Messiah, Jesus. As the sins of the world are laid on him on the cross, and he bears them. And he takes the punishment we deserve. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 and 10 through 14 talk about this. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, hear what he's saying there. He's saying that sacrificial system, it, they can't take away our sins. It points to the once-for-all sacrifice. Verse 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That sacrifice system, sacrificial system in the old covenant of these animals being sacrificed for sins, it says was an annual reminder of sin, but pointed to that once for all sacrifice as the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, all of our sins. And now it says by his one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It means now when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect, righteous, rightly related to him. You are justified, which is a word that means that you are without sin. You are as if you'd never sinned at all. You are declared not guilty before a holy God. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus has made us right with him, made us right with God. He takes the punishment. We get the peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was innocent. We were guilty. But he took our penalty and he gave us his righteousness. So what is the meaning of Christmas? It's a love story. It's a rescue story. It's a story about a God who saw people rebelling against him hurting themselves and each other, caught up in sins and struggle, in their mess, unable to save themselves. It's about a God who could have punished these people justly, but instead chose to come into our story, to be born into our world, to live the perfect life we could not live, to die a sacrificial death in our place for our sins, to willingly take the curse upon himself so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. That's the meaning of Christmas. Jesus came into the world to live and die for us, for you. I want to close with one of my favorite quotes. It's from Brennan Manning's book, The Signature of Jesus, that hopefully brings to the heart level just what it is that I've been saying here. On the night of December 13th, during what began as a long and lonely hour of prayer, I heard in faith Jesus Christ say, For love of you I left my Father's side. I came to you who ran from me, fled me, who did not want to hear my name. For love of you I was covered with spit, punched, beaten, and affixed to the wood of the cross. These words are burned on my life. Whether I am in a state of grace or disgrace, elation or depression, that night of fire quietly burns on. I looked at the crucifix for a long time, figuratively saw the blood streaming from every pore of his body, and I heard the cry of his wounds. This isn't a joke. It is not a laughing matter to me that I have loved you. The longer I looked, 
the more I realized that no man has ever loved me and no one ever could love me as he did. I went out of the cave, stood on the precipice and shouted into the darkness, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind to have loved me so much? I learned that night what a wise old man had told me years earlier. Only the one who has experienced it can know what the love of Jesus Christ is. Once you have experienced it, nothing else in the world will seem more beautiful or desirable. Have you experienced the love of Christ? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Has what Jesus did for you penetrated your heart to the point where you realize how deep his love is for you? That he has saved you from your sins, that there is no condemnation, that you have eternal life, that you are a beloved child of God. Christmas is the rescue mission of God. A God who loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to live and die for you. Turn in faith to trust him today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 